Tom, Tom asked me how uh, the song he was thinking about doing would go with the message this morning. And I hadn't heard it before. I thought, well, it would sound like it would be good. And if you didn't sing that, what would you sing? He would said, well, I would sing Hold Me Jesus. And I said, sing that one. And you're going to see why. Fill in this blank. I've had a lifelong struggle with what? Fill in the blank. I, you have to say it out loud. I have had a lifelong struggle with what? Here, here's another one. I'll tell you what really bugs me. Yeah, yeah, you like that one, don't you? I'll tell you what really bugs me. Or this has bothered me. Or this has been a thorn in my flesh all of my life. Fill in the blank. What is that? What would you say that is? What is it? Is it, is it, is it gluttony? Is it drunkenness? Is it lust? Is it people? <laughs> it's people. Now, you'd be honest, a lot of you, that's what you're thinking, wasn't it? It's people that really bug me. I heard a missionary say that once. That's a funny thing for a missionary to say. Pastors sometimes will say that. People bug me. Pastors. Um, is it shame? I've had a lifelong struggle with abuse. I've had a lifelong struggle with rejection. I've had a lifelong struggle with pornography. By the way, if you have a struggle with pornography, pornography isn't the problem and filters isn't the answer. I've had a lifelong struggle with immodesty, promiscuity. I've had a lifelong struggle with homosexuality or gender confusion. How, what would you put in that blank? What would you put in that? There's no doubt in the room today, people who struggle with sexual confusion. In a group this size, in a culture that we live in. And boy, that's, that's got to be a struggle. I've had a lifelong struggle with underemployment, unemployment. I've had a lifelong struggle with my wife. No nudging allowed. My husband, my children, my boss, my neighbor, my failure, my health. I've had a lifelong struggle with what? What glaring weakness? What great sorrow? What human handicap, if I can say it that way? What permanent problem w would you put in the blank that I'm talking about here? Think about that. If I only had done this differently, if this had only been different, if I had not done that, or if I had done or if it wasn't for this, what's in the blank in your life? Then my life would be, then my life would be okay. Then my life would be right. Then I would be happy. Then it would be good. If only that, or, or not this, or if it wasn't for that. What's in the blank there? What is in your blank? Keep that in mind. Whatever's in, and maybe it's just like this week's current thing that irks you. Put it in the blank, okay? And keep it in mind. And in the story of God, in the story of Jacob... You're going to see something about your struggles that you may never have seen before. Jacob the wrestler. Born, the guy was born wrestling with his brother. Of course, he was a twin. 
born wrestling with his brother. Born wrestler. <laughs> he came into the world grappling, came into the world struggling, came into the world fighting. He didn't have a strong relationship with his father. That could have been what was in the blank of his life. He had a weird relationship with his mother. He didn't have a healthy relationship with his brother at all. Very unhealthy. He didn't have a good relationship with his wives or their servants or his children. And they were messed up. We're not even going there right now. Actually, if I would start to tell you some of the things his children got involved in, you would blush if you had any sense. His wives and children multiplied the tensions in his life. And it got to the point where he could, it seemed like whenever he would get to a real showdown in his life, he would escape. He would move. God would move him. He would move. And it had just happened, right? Jacob and Laban, remember that? He got away from his brother Esau. He went to Laban. Laban troubled him. He got away from Laban. He came back. But now he's between the rock, Laban, and the hard place, Esau. Right? He's in serious trouble. He gets away from Laban, barely escaping by the skin of his teeth. And in the morning, he's going to face his brother who he hasn't seen, who's had 20 years to allow this homicidal hatred to just fester in his life. His story is found there in Genesis 32. Genesis 32. Let me tell you the story. Jacob meets God face to face in Genesis 32. In Genesis 33, he meets Jacob or Esau again face to face. And what's going to happen when he meets Esau? But first of all, what happened when he met God face to face? Here's a story, verses 1 and 2. Angels meet Jacob. Interesting how in the Bible when, you know, angels just kind of happen along regularly, but in our lives it's, we don't see them commonly, right? I mean, did you get an angel visitation this week? Anybody? I want to hear about it if you did. I mean, that would be an unusual thing. They, and again, remember, not little pixie angels. We're talking about man, manly men angels, you know, you know the warrior angels, you know, forces to be reckoned with, God's special forces. Think like that. Heaven's Green Beret. This is the kind of thing we're talking And we're not talking about a few. We're talking about a whole bunch. And whenever anybody encounters angels in the Bible, they're scared spitless, right? So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And the assumption here is that they were not against him, but that they were for him, which is good. And Jacob saw them, and he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place, like, God's camp. Mahanaim, by the way, later on this is going to factor again in an interesting way. But what Jacob sees here is he sees the reality of the spiritual defense that he has with him. God lets him see this host of angels, and then a, a, a literary motif pops up. It's, in other words, it's something that's going to re, be repeated here. And whenever God repeats something, his stories are very terse. The stories of God are, are very terse. They're not long and detailed. So in, especially in Hebrew literature, they tell me that when a detail is inserted, the detail has importance. And if a detail is repeated, then you want to know why is the detail repeated. And three times in this passage, there are two camps. And we certainly know at this point in Jacob's life, Jacob comes at this point in his life and God once again breaks into his reality and says, hey, hey Jacob, it's not just about you. There are angels warring here. There's another camp altogether. Angels, m greater men than myself have made wonderful messages on those first two verses. 
Verse 3, though, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sur, in the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you with 400 men with him. This is not the welcome wagon. He's like, oh, no. 400 men. So this is not good news. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels in two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the other company will be left to escape. He just starts scheming right away. Even though he's had an angelic visitation, <laughs> he still immediately, his first response is to, is to, is to put something together. It's to plan. It's to organize. It's to scheme. So somehow, probably not a bad idea altogether, But then the second thing that he does is interesting because after he does this, he does something that shows like one of the, it's one of the first examples in his life of progress in growth in faith. You you really have to look close in the stories of Jacob to find him doing good stuff. It's God always doing good stuff, almost like to him and with him and through him. But Jacob's consistently doing dumb things or He's consistently doing wrong things, and, and in this case, he gets it right, dead on. He does something, but you know, it's just about what anybody does when they finally find themselves completely between a rock and a hard place, and they can't, they have no wiggle room with God. What do we do when finally we have absolutely no resources, and we are in the dark night of the soul, and we are scared to death? He does what it's natural for us to do. Not everybody does this, but he did. He prays a desperate prayer. He prays a desperate prayer. And it is a wonderful prayer. It's from verses 9 to 12. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. You get what he's doing? He's not, he's not dumb. He may be... He may be a rascal, but he's not dumb. At this point, he's saying, Oh, God of Abraham. <laughs> Abraham, remember Grandpa Abraham and made, you made all the promises to? And Isaac, my dad, remember that? He's reminding God. And remember you, the God that told me you promised me you'd take care of me? Well, he's sounding like a Sunday school teacher now, isn't he? He's just praying. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. And now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Here Jacob is really reaching back for the promises of God. And he's reminding God of his promises. Hey, God, remember what you said. My descendants, they're not going to die. I mean, Esau's not going to kill everybody here, right? Because, I mean, didn't you promise we're going to be, and this is the first time it occurs in Scripture, like the sand of the sea. Remember all the 
images that God has given to accompany His wonderful covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He says, come out under the stars and look at the stars. You're going to outnumber the stars. Look at the dust of the earth. Your descendants will be greater than the dust of the earth. And then this one, we cannot lose from our imagination. Your descendants will be like the sands of the sea. Jacob says to God, God, help me here. This is a beautiful prayer. It's so interesting. It reminds me a little bit. Do you mind if I just like go off here a little bit? It reminds me a little bit of my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Bad theology, okay? Really bad theology. Wicked. But great, great movie. Other than that. Um, boy, can you really say that? Anyway, so here's George Bailey. He's in a bar praying. Remember that? You watched it, didn't you? Yeah. George Bailey, remember this? He's praying in a bar. He's like so sincere. He tears up and he says, God, help me, right? He has this wonderful prayer. And what happens right after that? Did you guys watch this movie? Because that's required viewing, all right? Okay, just in case, you make sure you get that done at least before next Christmas. And that's this, that and Anna Green Gables. Um, and that is this, guy walks over and punches him in the face. And he basically says to God, okay, that's what I get for praying. Which is almost exactly what happens to Jacob here. God shows Jacob angels. Uh, God shows Jacob his threatening brother and the 400 people coming. J- Jacob is really scared. He's got cotton mouth. He's spitless. He's scared. He's really scared. He's humble. He's pr- crying out to God. And what's God going to do? God's going to jump him here in a minute. God's going to beat him up. Is this like mysterious to anybody here besides me? When you read this, did you like get this the first time you read this? You know what the commentators call this? I had to look this up. I thought it was cool. Enigmatic. That means... I don't get it. That's what it means. Enigmatic. Put that in your little book. Impress the guys at the water cooler tomorrow. It's enigmatic. This is a mystery. What on earth? What's God doing to poor Jacob here? Somebody, some mysterious person jumps him and beat him up in the night. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Let's look further in the story. He prays, okay? Serious prayer now. Because he hasn't any other options. And then in verses 13 through 21, Jacob arranges gifts and messages of appeasement for his brother to go before him. He sends on the way messengers, and he stays behind for the night. And this is interesting because at this point, he's going to send his family across the ford of the river, of the river Jabbok. And he sends them across, or he takes them across and comes back. Nonetheless, now he's alone, and it's night, and he's completely alone. And I suppose he wants to be alone to kind of like uh, calm his nerves, or maybe to continue in his prayers. A guy has to be alone every once in a while, right? Sometimes I wonder why people, why do men fly fish? Most of the people I know that fly fish practice a thing called catch and release. They're not even going to eat the fish, and they spend all that money to catch fish that they're going to let go right away. What is the point of that? Have you ever figured out how much it costs to eat like a deer meat when you add up all that was involved in shooting the deer? It's like it would be a lot cheaper just to go down to McDonald's and get you know, a double cheeseburger for 99 cents, right? It's, you're not usually doing it because it's a bargain. I mean, you're going to say that, and I'm with you. If you want to say that, that's cool with me. Tell your wife, funny, I'm just saving money. That's cool. I'm with you on that. The fact of the matter is, you want to go out in the wild, don't you? Isn't it right? And your insides want to be outside. You want to go out and be alone. You need, every man needs a place to be alone. It might be in a library, that's a little more my style. Or it might be out shooting Bambi, that's your style. You know, it might be fly fishing, or it might be climbing a mountain. But Jacob is alone with God, and he's in nature, and the brook is gurgling nearby, and the night is falling, and suddenly, this is one of the most 
pregnant pictures in the Bible, somebody jumps Jacob in the night. What on earth is going on? Did Esau find out where he was and decide he was going to use a surprise tactic and attack him in the night and kill him and leave no trace? What's going on? And yet, it's a mysterious man, the Bible says, verses 22 through 32. And he arose that night and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and Dinah gets left out of this narrative, but she must have been around somewhere, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. That was his daughter, Dinah. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. This is to me where it gets a little bit mysterious. What's this mean? And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. That had hurt. <laughs> so the man, this mysterious man's wrestling with Jacob, and he's not beating him, and he decides he must have superior power because when he decides to, he touches his hip, and now Jacob is in serious trouble. And he says, let me go. The day breaks. You're like, if a person can touch your hip and wound you like that, Why does he need to ask you to let you go? It's very mysterious, isn't it? Right? Let me go the day breaks. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's like, wait a minute, who jumped who here? This man jumps Jacob, and Jacob's got him not going to let go. What happened in this? I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm in verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? What the man was saying to Jacob was tell me the meaning of your name. Tell me the meaning of your name. Jacob's like, kind of like, I've been really trying to avoid this all my life. Basically what Jacob has been doing all of his life is trying to pretend he's somebody else. He's got the idea that he doesn't get any blessing in his life unless he impersonates his brother or he acts like he's somebody else or people don't really figure out what he's really like or who he really is. But this mysterious person that's wrestled with him and says, you tell me, who you really are. And then somehow in that, Jacob gets the idea that this person is able and willing to bless him even though he knows who he really is. And so then it's like he's inspired. He says, then he, he gets a name change. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. It's almost like you're not going to be one who wrestles with little people. you one who's wrestled with God is the idea with the name. And a secondary, we often say prince, that's kind of a secondary uh, meaning of Israel. Probably the primary meaning is he's a person who wrestles with God. His name gets changed in the middle of the night, Israel, but you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, the man he was wrestling with, why is it you ask about my name? And he blessed him. He blessed him there. Changed his name and blessed him and wounded him. (laughs) Verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. I I saw God face to face. Who is this man that Jacob calls God? Who is this mysterious man who says, I can't get away unless you let me go, and then touches him and wounds him and has the authority to change his name. Who is this man who asked me, who asked, tell me who you really are? Who is this man who refuses to answer the question, tell me who you are? 
Who is this man who has the power to bless? This is one of those beautiful places in the Bible where heaven touches earth and Jesus comes and manifests himself in a pre-incarnate appearance before his time upon the earth. Jesus, I believe Jacob's wrestling with Jesus here. It's interesting. He crosses over. Then it says, I've seen face God face to face, and my life is preserved. Verse 31, just as he crossed over Penuel, it's, uh, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel don't eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. It was uh, legendary. What's going to happen in the morning? He's going to get up and he's going to go to meet Esau. And he's, and he's going to divide his family. And he's going to send him. And then finally he's going to go ahead. And he goes ahead. And he, and he bows himself to the, to the earth over and over again. And when Esau and his 400 people see him, he runs toward him. And he falls on his neck. And he kisses him. And he welcomes him. And in the end of this particular part of the story... Jacob builds a house, and he builds barns for his animals. And the promise of God that he would be able to come back to his land and that he would be protected from the homicidal rage of his brother is fulfilled. It's an interesting story, wouldn't you say? A man who struggles with God and prevails. He meets his brother. A.W. Tozer said something, and I've never been able to get it out of my mind. Here's what he said. When I was a young man, I didn't understand it anywhere near as well as I understand it now. Uh, when I was a younger man. Hear what he said. I doubt if God ever uses a man greatly until he has broken him deeply. Well, what's that mean? Why is... I think we've established that these are not just random stories that somebody found under a rock somewhere. These are the very stories of God and they are read in momentous circumstances and places. God says, I want my people to live by these stories. I want these stories to be written on the heart of my people. I want my people to identify with these stories. There are riches of truth in these stories. This isn't a history lesson at church. We don't do that here. This is all about you and today and God and eternity. And it's all wound up in this right here. This story is a story that God wants all of His people to understand. And what is it there that He's teaching us? All of us. It really is about our struggles if you think about it. What is so important about this story that God arranged for His people to tell it and retell it? Why on the eve of a great struggle that His people, that the children of Jacob, children of Israel would have as they were getting ready to go into the land and have one struggle after another, why would God tell them the stories of this wrestler, this lifelong struggler, Jacob, who struggled with men and then was struggle with God and then won and prevailed in his struggle with God? Why would He do that? Why do we need this story? It's because God wants us to understand how He works with the people that He has promised to bless. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm getting just ever so slightly ahead of myself. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in another covenant, in a wonderful covenant, in a better covenant, God has promised to bless you through His Son. And we are to thank the people of Israel for this. And the people of Israel will have a 
fulfillment. Their Zionists now struggle to demand what only God can one day give them in a sweet and wonderful way when He shoulders the government Himself and is good for all people everywhere. God, Jesus, will one day do that. And when He does that, He will be on this planet Earth and sitting on the throne of David. This will be the fulfillment of the covenant that He references in Jeremiah. But it's not now. Now the Gentiles, you and I, we get in on these covenantal promises through the blood of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. For believers, what's going on here? Here's the deal. God wants us to understand how He works. God wants all of us to understand this is the way God blesses a person who He draws into covenant with Himself and who He intends to bless. Six things to do with your struggles. Four things God will do in you. Here we go. Six things to do with your struggles. These are applications on the story that I just told. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, see God in your struggles and turn to Him. When you are in a struggle or in a series of struggles, don't run from God. Run to God. Actually, God's going to jump you, so just recognize it when it happens. See the spiritual realities around you. There are angels. There are demons. There's a spiritual reality. There's a God. This isn't just about you and your neighbor that's weird. This isn't about you and your troublesome wife. This isn't about you and your rebellious kids. This isn't about you and your weird pastor or any of that. It's about you and God. It's about you and God. In God's work, see God in your struggles. God is here. Well, I watched this little interview yesterday with this Indian guru guy, Deepak Chopra, and a pastor, a pastor named um, uh, Mark Driscoll and some other people. They were debating about whether there is a, a devil. <laughs> and I remi- it reminded me of talking with a missionary, Pierre Cadet, who's going to be here the last Sunday night in April. You want to hear. And as I was talking with him, he's like, if you grew up in Haiti, like I did, there are no atheists. You either believe in a devil or you believe in God because you see them both all the time. I said, you come tell the stories of that to our people. We need to know there's a devil. There's a God. It's real. And he's like, in, he's working incognito, but more and more he's going to come out more and more. We need to see that if we're going to really prevail with God, we have to see God in our struggles and turn to Him and realize this reality. Second thing, learn to pray humble, desperate prayers. That's what he did. Learn this. This is a good thing to do. Learn to pray humble, desperate prayers. The most wonderful prayers are desperate prayers. That's why prayer meeting is often so boring. Nobody's desperate, you know. It's like the infirmary roll call. Somebody's grandma's, mother's, first cousin's teacher has a hangnail. <laughs> pray for that. It's, it's like, okay, how do you, I write that down? But just pray for all the people in the world. Now, you know, you're looking funny at me, but you know very well, prayer meeting is often boring as all get out. Because we aren't desperate. But I'll tell you what, when you lose your job, your prayer all of a sudden, you're coming, hey, can, is there somebody, can, can somebody pray with me here? Amen? I'm with you too because enough of you lose your job, it may in, influence my job. Right? I'm going to be with you. We're going to be, hey, let's get a little prayer group. It might not even be Wednesday night then, right? We're all going, God, would you help us? Right? Am I right? You know, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, prayer meeting, I don't think I'm going tonight. I'm going to watch, here I go, American Idol. I'm going to watch American Idol. Yeah, instead of prayer meeting, you spiritual giant, you. Uh, I'm not going to quit on this, but <laughs> it's going to keep bringing it up until you get right. And it, what, what are you, so, so, you know, so I'm going to go to prayer meeting. I'll tell you what, I'll trump American Idol. Tragedy, difficulty, heartache, cancer. God help me. I, I, I want to go to prayer meeting. I want to get on, I want to be with some of God's people. It might even be Wednesday night. It might be early in the morning. It might be all through the night. You're going to be desperate in your prayer. You know what I'm saying. 
This is the way it looks. When the men and women of God really met with God, there were these desperate prayers. That is one of the reasons why God lets you go through the terrible struggles that you've been going through. Because He's going to bless you until you've had a desperate prayer. And you're not going to have a desperate prayer until you're conscious of the reality of God and the reality of the struggle that you're going through. Third, expect this to hurt. Expect it to hurt. Don't be surprised if it hurts. Don't be shocked if God hurts you. You remember the old story that the Sunday school teacher used to tell you about the shepherd that would go find the straying lamb and break the lamb's leg and then take the lamb and put it over his shoulders so that the lamb would never stray again? It was like this gentle, wonderful shepherd that would say, I can't allow you ever to stray away. You'll die, so I will break your leg. There's a truth to this. God will hurt us. You say, well, Pastor, shouldn't you say God will allow hurt to happen? But He's the sovereign God. He's in control of everything. He, some, what is it the, the, the writer said? He's not a tame lion. He, he whispers in our, in our pleasures, but he, but he shouts in our, in our pain. He shouts in our pain. That's where we meet God. That's the way God usually works. He meets us in the darkness. He meets us in our fears. He meets us in our pain. He meets us in the nagging questions of our lives. And that's why it's a little scary to really go on an adventure with God. It's not a stroll in the park. It's sorrows threats, dark nights of the soul. They are opportunities for progress and faith. That's why people who know God often say, don't waste your sorrows, because it's in your sorrows you're going to make great progress in the Lord. It's true. You've gone through the valley with Him, and you know He's real, because He was real to you in the darkest night of your life, right? That's the way it works, so expect it to hurt. He whispers in our pleasure, He shouts in our pain, there will always be a great sorrow. There will always be an arch enemy. There will be a series of insurmountable obstacles. Or maybe you just get pecked away by pettiness, petty people, irritating people, constantly. Why is it, though, that God arranges people that are all just alike to kind of band together and irritate you? And it may be in different towns and different churches. You ever think, hey, maybe this struggle isn't with irritating people. Maybe God is using irritating people to irritate me to himself. Maybe he's got, me, got something to learn. And then we just keep going back in failure and he has to keep teaching us the lesson over and over again. It's like, when are you going to figure this out that I'm at work? Number one, see God in your struggles. Number two, pray humble, desperate prayers. Number three, expect it to hurt. Number four, admit who you are. This is so wonderful. Tell him who you are. When he asks your name, tell him, I'm Jacob. Tell him who you are. Admit who you are. And this, this is a wonderful thing. It's when you admit who you are, you discover who he is. God says to Jacob, tell me your name. God knew his name. He didn't tell me who you are. And, then, and I'll tell you what I'm going to make you. What we are, spend most of our life doing is trying to convince people, and, and this is really folly, convince God that we're somebody blessable. Hey, God, hey, here I am. I'm, I'm a Baptist. You know, God says, I work with a lot of you people. <laughs> he got, I, I, I'm, you know, fill in the blank. I, I, I went to prayer meeting. I, I, I read my Bible. Here I am. I, I, I stopped, I stopped doing this evil thing or that wicked thing for a few days. So here I am, God. How, what do you think? What do you think? God, I'm Esau. I'm Esau. Bless me. God's like, really? This isn't going to happen until you just admit who you are. Do you see the gospel in this? We'll talk about that a little bit more. Expect it to hurt and admit who you are. So the man, then he discovers who God is. Number five, see God in your hurts and struggles and turn to him. Two, learn, pray, humble, desperate prayers. Three, expect it to hurt. Four, admit who you are. Five, discover who he is. 
This happened with Jacob. It had to, right? God jumps him in the night, and then Jacob doesn't let him go. And somehow in the night, Jacob is desperately clinging to Jesus, saying, bless me. All of a sudden, Jacob... I'll tell you one thing Jacob had going for him. He started early in his life. He was the guy of the two brothers that had at least a hint that the birthright had some value, right? He was the one, even though he manipulated to get it, that he realized that the, that the, the blessing had some value. I mean, he had that going for him. He was trying to make it happen himself. And he is the guy here who suddenly realizes in the night that this person who jumps him is able to bless him. And you, when you get to that point in your life when the struggles crush in on you and God crushes you with the circumstances or the difficulties or heartaches that come to you, that you don't run from him, but you cling to him and you desperately hold to him. And he holds to you and you say, Jesus, bless me because you're the only one who can bless me. Now you're getting somewhere with God. He's going to give you a new name and you're going to limp away victorious. And that's realize that your struggle really always is. That's number six. Realize your struggle really isn't with people. It really isn't with irritating people. It's really not your weight. It isn't pornography. It isn't. That isn't the struggle. You never win. You never win if you think that's the struggle. That isn't it. The struggle is with God. It's not your irritating neighbor. It's not your mother. It's not how your dad treated you. Understand how badly that can hurt. It isn't the sexual abuse that you suffered at the hands of somebody that should have loved you and treated you right. That's not it. I understand how bad that must be. I've talked with people whose lives are scarred by that. But I want to tell you this. The real issue is God. Realize your real struggles with God. And you go and meet God alone. Jacob thought the big event was tomorrow. Jacob thought the big event was Esau. God says, no, the big event's tonight. It's not Esau, it's me. This is what Calvin pointed out as he tried to untangle this. And he wrote about this. It's interesting. And you would expect a guy like Calvin to see the power of the sovereignty of God and all this. God arranges all these unbelievable circumstances because he's doing something wonderful in Jacob's life. And he must realize it comes from the hand of the, the struggles with God. The difficulties, the job situations, the family situations... The marriage situations, the sibling situations, the in-law situations. Your dog died. Hey, don't laugh. That's serious for a lot of people. Incredible heartache that people go through. And they ask sincerely. They're afraid to ask, but they sincerely ask pastors. I don't know, a single pastor who hasn't been asked the question, it, it, kind of like it's a shameful question, Pastor, can I, I hate to ask you this, but will, it, is it possible that my dog, that I will see my dog again in heaven? Seriously, I, I'm having my tire changed one day, and a lady looked at me. I could tell by the look in her face it was not a joke, and it wasn't something that I dared joke with her about. She said, Pastor, can you tell me if my dog will be in heaven? You, you, maybe you're this way, and an animal can get so close to you that it becomes almost an idol in your heart. We do have the strangest idols, all of us. And God says, it's really not about your dog. It's not about your cancer. It's not about your gluttony. It's not about the pornography. It's not about the lust. It's not about your immodest dress. It's about me. It's about me. And that, folks, that is why as a church, we want to be committed to holiness of life. But we do not want to spend our time working the systems to get people to look like they're holy. We want to see God work deeply in the hearts of people so they really will be holy. And then that way, someday, when nobody's around with a system to force them into place, 
The holy God of the universe will be living in their heart and they will make a right decision if no one else is around to enforce that decision. That's what the Bible teaches. Holiness from the Bible. And that's what God demands. And that's what we ought to spend our time on. Realize our real struggle is with God. Three things this will do in you. And let me give them to you. One, the process, in the process, God will change you. In Jacob's example, Jacob, he gave him a new identity and he gave him a new humility. You ever hear this, Lois and I were singing a song the other day. Lois, we were standing over there and the song said, God humble me. And we both looked at each other and we're like, we don't pray that. Your pastor and his wife do not pray, God humble me. We, we know God will humble us <laughs> because we've been humbled so frequently. We just say, we'll humble ourselves, thank you. So we just humble ourselves. And I understand what the song said, God, humble me. We understand he can translate. He's so wonderful. It's just something's kind of sticking in your throat, right? I remember one time a guy came to the church. He preached this wonderful message about being a parade soldier and being a battle soldier. He said a parade soldier wants to be seen. He puffs out his chest. He shows his medals. He struts around. But a real battle soldier wants to hide. He wants to get behind a rock. He doesn't want to die. He said, what kind of soldier are you? Are you a parade soldier? Are you a battle soldier? I'm behind. Oh, Lord, I'm a parade soldier through and through, man. I want people to see me. So I go forward, you know, weeping forward. Levi Wisner. He comes and prays with me right in the front. I go, Pray that I would humble my... You wouldn't believe what happened after I prayed that prayer. It was ugly, wasn't it? I'm telling you, when God... God, So I'll just say, you humble yourself, okay? Just humble yourself. And this is what happens here in this... You say, God, why the struggles? He says, I'm doing something with you. I'm making something of you. Humble yourself. Admit who you are. Pray desperate prayers. Come to know who you are. Come to know who I am. I'm not harming you, although it's going to hurt. It may hurt. In the process, God will change you. Second, you will learn the blessed sovereignty of God, the sweet sovereignty of God. You will see that you are not at the mercy of fate. You're not at the mercy of men. You're not at the mercy of your own mistakes. But God has always been, and He always will be in control. Anything less than that is not God. It's heresy. It's heresy to say that God is not in control of everything. It's heresy. That's a good place for amens right there. Now, if you couldn't say amen there, you know, work that that out in your mind. God is in control. That's what it means to be God. He is in in sovereign control. What what am I saying? Why am I saying that? It's why the girl who says, Pastor, you don't know what happened to me when I was a little girl. It was so horrible. How could could God have allowed that thing to happen to me? And my heart just aches when I hear it, but I must believe. No, our God was in control, doing something more wonderful than you can ever imagine if you will not run from Him, but if you will run to Him. If you will run from Him, it will be the darkest misery and the most terrible things will happen. But if you've been hurt and you run to God and He shows you the compensation that He would give to your spirit for the terrible thing that might have happened to your body, then all throughout eternity you reap the benefits of walking with God in the, in the difficulties and the heartaches of this life, which all of us have in some way or another. God is in control. God is sovereign. Here's a guy named Stevie. He loves his dad. His dad's a pilot. Little Stevie watches his dad fly away. He's a missionary hero. But his daddy never comes back. And 
all of his life, Steve Saints says, God, why? Why didn't those men take my daddy's life when he was just a missionary telling them about Jesus and they, they put a spear in the temple of his head? Why did they do that? Why did they kill all of his friends? He goes back to those very same people. He spent his entire life wrestling with God, struggling with God, loving God, but wondering why God, until one day in a cluster, sitting around a fire with the very man who took his father's life, it all begins to make sense to him. And in his book, The End of the Spirit, you can read it. He says, God did not allow my father to die. God arranged for my father to die. It's too many circumstances that came together that were unusual. It couldn't have just happened. It wasn't something that God just allowed. It was something that God arranged. God will arrange some scary things in this world to do the wonderful and beautiful thing that He's going to do in the future. He's going to use. It's going to be in the lives of people like us. This is what we do. We resign ourselves in a, in a happy resignation, in a joyful, sober recognition of the, of the providence of God, of the sovereignty of God that He is in control. Third thing, number one is God will change you. Number two is you'll learn the sovereignty of God, the blessed sovereignty of God. That's a big deal. No, nobody, nobody will ever make any progress with God. Nobody can ever really walk with God and make sense of their heartaches of their life until they believe that God is in control. Nobody can ever survive the hurts of their life. You don't, you don't become a Corey Ten Boom unless you believe that God is in control. You know, the tramp for the Lord, the woman who, that square-jawed, you know, Dutch lady that, that went all over the world and had the radiance of God upon her. When she spoke at Moody Bible Institute, they say that when she got them speaking, he was a square-jawed, big, you know, Dutch lady. She'd come with, a, you know, with her Dutch accent, and she spoke at Moody Bible Institute. And when she got done, the students I know, I was at Moody, they're all eager to get to class right away. Hurry, don't get a cut, you know, get on. Nobody moved. Nobody spoke. It was a silence over the whole crowd. Dr. Sweeting got up and said, Well, I don't think any of us really want to go away. Would you talk to us some more? And so she got up and she talked some more. Maybe another hour. And then finally he got up and he said, Well, none of us really want to go away, but I suppose we must draw this to a close. Now the power of God and the sweetness of God on a person's life like that, who spent time in the Nazi prison camp, and they took her father's life, and they took her sister's life. How does that happen? That does not ever happen to anybody who doesn't understand the sovereignty of God, that God was at work in those dark times. Third thing, you'll have a new understanding of weakness and strength. Here's, a, here's another way of saying it. You won't strut anymore. You'll limp for the rest of your life. If you, really, you can tell a person's really met with God. People that strut have not met with God. People that limp have met with God. Right? If you're proud and you're somebody and you're something and you're here to impress, well, you just need some struggles and you need God to take you down to Chinatown. That's what you need. And then after he takes you down to Chinatown and he, he crushes you and you have some desperate prayers, you will have a blessed limp for the rest of your life. Your prayers will be different and sweeter and humbler. And God will be on you. And the fragrance of God will be on you. That's such a wonderful thing. It's true. You can see it in the Word of God. It was true with Paul. Powerfully used of God. But he said, and, he, and, he, and he, what was the struggle? The struggle, Paul, Saul, Saul said, I'm beating up Christians. Jesus said, no, you're beating up me. The struggle with Christians is with me. And God comes and he jumps Saul. 
turns, his, turns him to Paul, uses him in a powerful way, and yet he still keeps afflicting him all of his life. And Paul says, God, please, I don't want this thorn in the flesh that's troubling me. It's like Satan buffeting me. And, God says, and then he says, but it's God. Put it there. It's like, well, what is it? It's both. Because God is sovereign. And what does he say? He glories then is in infirmities. Now is this wrestling match with God starting to make more sense to you? Because we all have this wrestling match. We all have our struggles. We all meet God in the dark. He jumps us if we're his children and he intends to bless us. And then through the struggles of our life, we realize who we are. We realize who he is. We realize the sovereignty of God. We pray desperate prayers and we don't strut anymore. We just have this wonderful limp and we're, and we're kind of proud of it. It's like I walk away with a limp and I make a heritage of it. It's like, yes, this, that's the man. The rest of Jacob's life, he said, see him? That's the guy who met with God. And God crushed him. And he limped away. He met with God face to face. And God blessed him. One, because he was... Do you see the gospel in this? Let me, let, me, let me conclude. You thought I never would. Let me conclude. Two things. One, it's the same with every message here, especially in all these. Someone has called a series of messages about Jacob, the gospel according to Jacob. And it's really true. Can you see the gospel in this? This is the gospel. You don't come to God beating your chest. You don't come to God presenting your goodness. What foolishness. You come to God telling him your name. God, I'm a deceiver. I'm a sinner. And then what does he do? He puts his righteous character on you. How does he do this? He does it through the blood of his son, through the work on Calvary, the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how we enter into new covenant blessing with God. And so I would say to you, if you're not already saved, many of you are. Some of you aren't. You think you are, and you may not be. If you're not saved, what would you say to you? I would make sure that I am. Can you see this? I mean, who wouldn't want to be under the covenant favor of God? Get there by telling him your name and realizing who he is. Do you realize the struggles that he's allowed in your life are his gracious way of nudging it to himself? And if you're a believer here, here's the deal. I wrote this down carefully so that I would, so that you would get it very clearly. Let me tell you, as a believer, let me just suggest this to you. Dedicate your struggles to God. Somebody, sometimes people say it like this. They say, dedicate your body to God, or dedicate yourself to God, or consecrate yourself to God. Well, let me be really even more precise. Dedicate the actual struggles of your life to God. The thing you put in the blank early on. Remember the thing you put in the blank early on? That's the one. Take that. That struggle. And say, God, I entrust you with this struggle I have with gluttony. Every morning when I get up, I say, God, I need you today. I don't have a chance without you. Every morning when I get up, I say, God, I I know I'm supposed to say, Lord, I know you love me, and I want to love you back. And the very next thing is, and I really need you badly today. Who on earth can possibly think that they can go forward in this Christian life you know, with their thumbs on the lapels, trying to impress people or God, and think they have power with God. Somebody asked me this question, a very insightful question this week, a, a natural question. Here's a question. Pastor, what about personal responsibility? <laughs> Where, where's personal responsibility come in? Pastor, what about, um, what am I supposed to do? Uh, you, say, you say, if I lose your job, just trust the Lord. Does that mean I go out looking for a job or I just sit home? What about uh, my, my personal responsibility, say, to defend my family and say that an intruder comes in the night? Am I supposed to just say, well, I'm just trusting the Lord? No, no, that's not true. 
No, I, I would say you should be packing. That's a great idea. We're Baptist folks, okay? That's a, that's a, that's a good idea. So you don't, don't shoot quickly, but think carefully first, you know. And, and um, it, you guys are too eager about that right there. I, I can tell I need to work with you some. You, you should defend your wife. You should defend your children. That, that should be that way. If you lose your job, you should go hard looking for another job. But let me have a friend. Do it with a limp. That's what I'm saying. Protect your family with a limp. Go look for a job with a limp. Don't, re- don't think for one minute that you're going to get out there and make it work unless God blesses what you're doing. You look in this word and you say, God, I want to obey you and I want to trust you. This is the idea for This is the application for a Christian. And that is this. Don't think that when difficulty comes, don't default out and have a season of disobedience to the Lord. Get it? Don't say, well, I'm going to, now you're tempted and you sin because you're going to face Esau. You're going to go the other way. No, no, no. Go forward with the Lord and continue in obedience to him. Hey, I, I got to quit. I knew I was going to have a lot of trouble here today and, uh, to, because what a gold mine. Is this not a gold mine in this, in this wonderful story of God? Pastor, I'm thinking of the 80 in the hymn book, Day by Day. I, I, I always wonder what you're thinking. But day by day... And, and with each passing moment, let's stand together. And you, you, if we can help uh, you, you come and we'll talk with you. Let's sing this as we... <laughs>